Welcome to Leadership Bites with myself, your host, Guy Bloom. This is a leadership podcast where I have conversations with colleagues, I chat with guests, and sometimes they'll be just me talking. You can connect with me at livingbrave.com. And when you enjoy the episode, subscribe and please tell everyone. Amy, fantastic to have you on this episode of Leadership Bites. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm super excited. I, I say this a lot, but I just get such great guests on that I get excited every time they come on. So uh, in, in my 50s, I'm, I'm, I'm like a 15-year-old opening up a present. So uh, I'm super pleased that you're here. And just for people that just don't know who you are, Amy, it would be great just to have an introduction for for them. And, and then we can get into uh, all the things I'd, I'd love to talk about. Yeah, well, I guess I'm a, I'm a scholar. I'm a researcher. I'm a speaker. I'm a professor at Harvard Business School where I have just completed 25 years on the faculty. So time does fly when you're having fun. And I've been doing research on teams and organizations for the last 30 years or so. And I live to kind of give some of that back. So I'm delighted to be here. And you know, there's there's many things about the role that you inhabit, and I've seen the breadth of work that also you've generated, and I'll put links to that uh, in the description for people to um, d- definitely have a look at. And, you know, I have a, a kind of a question that is one of those, it, I'm almost going to be embarrassed to ask it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. But, you know, how do you get to be a professor at Harvard? You know, <laughs> so that's a good gig, you know, <laughs> but... What's an advert and you just, you know, no, how, did it, how did it happen? I'd love to hear the journey that, you know, hey, you know, there I was and that's how I got there. So the one word answer is study. Uh, but, the, but the longer answer is luck and, 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 and just curiosity, I suppose. So I, I started out right after I graduated from university the first time, I became an engineer working for an iconoclastic inventor, architect, futurist named Buckminster Fuller. Oh, my goodness. That, yeah. So that spoiled, right. Me, right? That spoiled right. me for real work. There was no right. way, uh, you know, in a sense, there was no way to go have a real job after that because Bucky, as we all called him, yep. um, treated everyone with such respect and such enthusiasm. And working around him was an exercise in contagion, you know, about... Mm-hmm about hope, about possibility, about human ingenuity. And he treated us all as if we had a perfect right to be there. I was 21 starting out. So, so there was a, a, you know, a sense for me, at least what work could be like that later on I realized wasn't characteristic of the workplace uh, more, more generally, but Fuller was quite inspiring. And I, I, he, died just a week short of his 88th birthday in the process of figuring out what next. I decided, you know, almost by way of giving back, to write a book uh, clarifying his mathematical work, right? So just like, we'll put that aside. So that's, and I, but I, I think it ends up being important because in the process of writing this book, which, you know, approximately nobody would want to read, I, I learned that in fact, I could, I could be a writer, right? That maybe I was a writer, right? I had been in college. I had nothing but problem sets, you know, very, very little writing as a, as an engineering major. And I was terrified of writing, but then I learned that I could do it. I could sort of stop and slow down and think carefully about how to be clear. 
And that became something that, that I loved doing. And yet there's no question I wasn't going to do that in the field of engineering or math. And in the process of sort of mastering these skills of writing and teaching in that period, I discovered organizations, right? And I, my, my next job, who was also for another wonderful entrepreneurial type person, Larry Wilson, I was in and out of big organizations, right? So I was working with, with, uh, with Larry and, and so many other colleagues on organizational change programs. And that's where I got the bug, right? That's where I thought, wow, organizations are really interesting. Workplaces are interesting. And I'm hopelessly undereducated. So I, I decided almost on a lark that I had applied to PhD programs in, in organizational behavior. I hardly knew what that meant, but someone suggested it to me. I thought, okay, I'll do that. Back in my mind, I was thinking, A, I won't get in. B, even if I get in, I can't afford it. Little did I know that, well, A, I got in, which was kind of, I, I suspect probably because I had finished a book, right? So the evidence was I could start something and finish something. You know, maybe that mattered. But what I didn't know, and now everybody knows when they're looking at these things at all, is if you get in, you get a full scholarship and a stipend, right? So what's a stipend? Well, you know, a stipend is that they're going to pay you essentially a living wage um, to study. You know, who gets who gets to do that? So that's who knew? Right? Who knew? Exactly. Of course, now, you know, now we have the Internet and everybody knows everything. But but I didn't know that. And so when when I learned that I was being accepted into this program and that it sort of came with what to me seemed like a reasonable salary and no expense, I just thought I'm in. Right. I didn't really understand what I was signing up for anyway. So I. I Ultimately, first it was a, I was had been ten years out of school. It was a new field. It was quite horrifying. I, I thought many, many times I'm flunking out of this program. But ultimately, I figured it out. You know, I figured out what the field was about and what what kinds of things um, I might be able to say. And I stayed. And I guess I did well enough to get hired uh, as an assistant professor 25 years ago at Harvard Business School, and then. Each time, of course, I thought, well, I'll never get to stay here, right? I won't get, I won't get promoted, but that's okay because I've learned so much from being here. I learned so much about teaching. I learned so much about research and writing and publishing. Um, and each time, lo and behold, they kept promoting me till I was a full professor. And now I've been that for about 15 years. I don't know why I'm <laughs> laughing. It's just I'm still getting over Buckminster. I'm still getting over Buckminster Fuller. <laughs> I mean, sorry, I went on so long, but it is a kind of, um, Perfect. you know, happy accident, right? That's how I got to be a professor at Harvard. Do you know, lots of people have moments in their life and it's a beautiful thing when they come quite early on. And it's a particularly sometimes when you just don't know the value of the experience that you're having. And, you know, maybe, yeah. how, I mean, that can come at any age and for some people it never happens, but there are just these key moments. And I, I think back to, I'm a lifelong martial artist and I met a very particular person who, uh, because I, my sort of childhood was an absolute disaster. That's a whole nother story and a bottle of wine, but this individual became the father figure, became the guide. 
but of course I didn't know he was fulfilling that role. I didn't know certain wisdoms were being given to me because I was just turning up and doing training and he was letting me teach other people. And I was only wow. young. Yeah. But it's that thing that, but who knew? And you, and of right. course I, I look back and I go, huh? Yeah. That's, that's why I think like this, this is why that stability was given to me. So it's, it's beautiful when I hear another kind of, when you say a name that probably even you didn't realize who he was, even though. Absolutely. Know. It's just an accident really, because mm. I, my path happened to cross. I happened to hear him give a talk while I was in college. I happened to be quite struck by it. Yeah. And, and then just before graduating from college, I thought, you know, I've got to get a job. Right. But then I thought, Maybe I'll just write him a letter. Well, that's silly. Like he's yeah. not going to read it. He's not going to read it, right? But then it was it was a it was more of a therapeutic gesture than a practical one. I thought if I write him a letter, I'll get this off my chest, and then I can get back to the practical job of finding a job, right? So I wrote him a letter, essentially not asking for a job, but asking for advice. Right? I've been studying these things and blah blah blah, and you know, any advice? Well, yeah. yeah. I got a letter. I got a letter back within a week yeah. and basically said, please join me in my Philadelphia office, wow. which I thought was a job offer. And of course it was, but my parents looked at it. It's like, well, you know, what were you does he mean for tea? <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, there was no clarity to it at all, but I, at that moment I had total faith yeah. that this was going to be life-changing. Right. And, and so I, I just, I didn't even really, I mean, I think I wrote back and said, sure, but then there was no more correspondence. And then truly five or six months later, I just showed up in Philadelphia and he acted like that was perfectly normal, right? Just sort of showed me a, a desk. Uh, and it did turn out that there were two yeah. young men who had been his engineering team um, and they'd both gone back to graduate school. Right. And, and so there was this little void. So there was something for me to do. Fortune yeah. favors the brave, right? Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've got to share, I wouldn't, I've never, I've never told this little story, but when I was 13, 14, you know, parental mess disaster, but I, I came across this article in a magazine, martial arts magazine in the UK. You know, and there was this Chinese gentleman teaching martial arts. And he was taught by Yip Chun, who's the son of Yip Man and Yip Man taught Bruce Lee. Right. So I remember, right. His address was at the bottom and I wrote him a, a letter. I'm 14. You wow. Know? Well, cause there was, there was no, you know, didn't have a phone number, but, you know, I, I got a, I got a thing called a pen, you know, a piece of yeah, yeah. and I, I wish I kept it because now I'd have taken a photo of it, but I sent it off and it was no doubt some, the, the, the ramblings of a 14 year old, let alone the ramblings of a, of a 50 year old. But, and I just, you know, hello, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he lived in Blackpool and I was in Birmingham, which you don't know, but it's North and Midlands and South exactly. <clears throat> and I just got this letter back, you know, nearly a month later that said, you know, please come and see me on a Saturday morning where I, where I take, and the rest, I became a private student. I became an indoor student. I then traveled to blah, blah, blah. But the thing is, what, what makes you go, you know, I'm going to write a letter. Because everybody else around you will go, well, he's not going to say yes. Right. He's not going to answer. He's probably not even going to read it. Yeah. Right? But you just that. decide, well, it's probably worth it to me to get it off my chest. 
right? And the yeah. stamp, I recall, was uh, was 13 cents. And I do remember thinking, well, that's a waste of 13 cents. But why not, right? Funny, isn't it? And it's like that. There's a film called Sliding Doors, I think. With is it with yes. Gwyneth Paltrow? And if you exactly just, that. what would happen if you just hadn't? Where, who would you right. be today, right? Who knows, right? I'd probably yeah. be a math teacher, which would be pretty good, but yeah. different. Yeah. Oh, right. I'm gonna move. <laughs> I, could, I could go this. I could stick on this one for a while, but I'll move on. So you now here you are, and you're in this this role where, probably, regardless of whether or not. Uh, you you want it or seek it it's prestigious it holds a certain um kind of oomph that goes with the the organization and you know that that sort of that role that you hold within it so for you and where i think you know what are you putting your efforts into right now? Because, I mean, and I don't even know if sort of the, the whole COVID situation comes into it, but the reality is that leadership is inherently, there's so much written about it, we could waste time talking about a model. But just where's your head at? What are you putting your energy into? What are the thoughts that you're having that just are pertinent to you know, for people that might be looking to move into leadership or in leadership role and just almost what's on your, what's on your agenda? You know, I, I hate to say it, but it, leadership is on my agenda. Leadership is the sort of um, umbrella category mm-hmm. that keeps me up at night. And, and, and to get even, you know, to get, get a tiny bit more specific, it's leadership in the face of uncertainty, okay. which um, sounds kind of obvious, um, and yet at a deeper level, most of our, at least our models of management historically, don't work very well in the face of uncertainty, right? They, they work well, you know, management is about planning and setting goals and setting KPIs and, you know, giving people feedback that's plus when they hit them and negative when they don't, you know, as if, as if in time one, we have a clear enough line of sight on time two that we can specify what should be done, what it looks like. Now, I, I know that intellectually, we all appreciate that that's not how a lot of things work anymore. But I think emotionally and habitually, we don't appreciate it very well, right? So that mm-hmm. we, we still don't, um, we don't cope very well with uncertainty. We don't cope very well with, well, it could be this and it could be that kinds, kinds of thinking with the result that a lot of people at work, you know, a lot of, lot of um, associates, team members, employees are um, more anxious than they need to be because in a way they're getting mixed signals. They're getting mixed messages uh, from those to whom they report. Uh, and, and so the, you know, the, the kinds of, the, the ways that, that leaders at all levels, you know, frontline supervisors um, up, to, up to CEOs and maybe even uh, heads of government uh, need to show up is not the way most of them do show up, right? They need to show up with a high level of humility about how little we know and how challenging the situations we face are. Right. And that's that's not false modesty. That's not um, uh, sort of throwing up your hands and, and, and pretending you have no skills or no expertise at all. That's just a genuine 
you know, rational stance in the face of what lies ahead, which, you know, we could list our favorite worries or risks or, 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 or challenges, um, if, if you will. And so sort of showing up with that sense of humility, I think that corresponds with a genuine, we hope it's genuine, passion to make a difference, like a belief that if we give it our all, we can actually make something important happen here um, is, it was a sort of a good start. And then having, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about curiosity. Um, mm-hmm. Curiosity is something that most adults start to lose over time. Little, little children have it, of course, spontaneously. By the way, it was one of the things that was so stunning about Buckminster Fuller in his you know, late 80s. He was still just so darn curious. I mean, mm-hmm. I'd be curious about, I got a new pair of running shoes. He'd be stunned by how lightweight they were right? How the things in his youth were so different. And he'd be curious to learn more about how to, you know, how did Nike do that? Anyway, um, so curiosity, um, which to me is a crucial leadership stance, primarily because the simple reason Peter Drucker told us this, it drives us to ask more questions, Mm. right? And, and, you know, managers are not the ones with the answers. They're the ones with the good questions. And there's a whole you know, there's a whole lot we could think about what, what constitutes a good question. Um, and, and so curiosity is the force that will drive me to be interested in who are you and what do you bring and what's happening out there? What do the customers want? And, you know, what are the, what are the risks that lie ahead and, and, and all the rest? So, you know, so I think a lot about, well, how do we, let's say we recognize those kinds of things as vital in an uncertain world then how do we do how do we do better at instilling them in people because sometimes it seems that the people who are given positions of power and authority are not the people who have the humility and the curiosity um, to use them well yeah there's a lot in that what you just <laughs> what you've just been saying and, and you know i i'm picking yeah. up on a, a couple of things this interesting thing about curiosity and you know your willingness to have vulnerability yes and to see vulnerability as not making you vulnerable and and i'm i find that uh an an interesting topic of especially when we have for some the characterization that leadership means strength i need to emit and radiate control and if i have curiosity which may mean i am going to give you an ambiguous answer right that actually may be very clear to me as in look i'm absolutely clear about the fact that we don't know then how you know so there is a clarity i'm absolutely i'm personally confident but from politicians through oh so you don't know then mr or miss so and so and well no i I, right. well, I do know what you don't oh, but you're not making an actual decision and so this yeah. this kind of it suits certain agent provocateurs internally within an organ oh they don't know then all the way through to you don't know then with a microphone in your face and i think there's a lot of maturity that can happen intellectually, but as a flight or flight response, I kind of protect myself by playing the 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 kind of the alpha role because that's that that seems to secure the ship for the moment. I, I don't know if that resonates yeah, when I say these things. Absolutely, to you. and I 
think I completely agree with what you say. And I think it's ironic because in fact, by trying to exert control, you really reveal your insecurity, your vulnerability, because you can't control uncertainty. You, you know, you cannot, um, you can't win with control in an uncertain world. There's a section in my, in my book, The Fearless Organization, called Be a Don't Knower, which comes from the CEO of Eileen Fisher, whose name is Eileen Fisher, um, who, who, and many other wonderful CEOs, including Anne Mulcahy of, of Xerox, sort of advocate this, the power, you know, and, and from a position of power, it really is powerful to say, oh, I don't know. Important issue. I'm going to look into that. Or I'd like to learn more. I mean, most of us, you know, human beings will recognize that as a sign of strength, not weakness, right? It's weakness to cover up, to self-protect, to be absolutely allergic to vulnerability. But, you know, until you said that, you know, I talk about curiosity a lot. I talk increasingly about vulnerability. I never really realized how closely connected they are until you said it, right? It's that, that, Actually, curiosity makes us vulnerable because if I'm curious, I'm open. And if I'm open, I'm vulnerable, right? If I'm, if I'm curious, I want to find out more about what you know, what you've seen, what you bring. And now I'm vulnerable to bad news, dissent, all those things that we humans yeah. don't love. It's, it's fascinating as I, because martial arts is such a big part of my life since I, since I was a child. One of the things I always instill, but I also I notice is that if you ever go into martial arts classes, there are two types of cultures. There are the ones where the instructor at the front is the best one in the class. Nobody can beat them. They're unbeatable. Their word is law. And what you see is that they may have competent students, but they'll never surpass the level wow. that has been set by the instructor because the instructor's unbeatable. And then you go into other classes and, you know, the, ins the instructor's very competent, but he's got students who can basically tie them up in knots because they've surpassed that person. Wow. And what you realize is this whole idea when you're, when somebody says, God, I'd like to become an instructor, I go, okay, then First of all, get comfortable with failure because all the best instructors, practitioners have failed more times than the beginner can imagine because that's, that is that willingness to constantly fail. And of course, when you've got a six foot five, 19, 230 pound, whatever it might be, beast of a human being who's comfortable with failure, then I don't mind practicing with him. Right. But I don't want to practice him with him if he doesn't like losing. <laughs> right. <laughs> because right. I'm, I'm going to get hurt. I'm going to get that. damaged. Exactly. So you can see that if there's a pecking order of, don't, you know, that people start to become a little bit submissive, they let the other person win so they don't get hurt. They give in quite quickly, just like in an organization, right? It's, am I going to get hurt if I offer this into this space? So oh. what you realize, and, and this is part of my transference, I mean, you know, not, not coming at it from where you're coming at it from, but working, you know, with, with people on a daily basis is senior level toxicity. If you, I, I don't, it's not, I don't talk about affecting, it's infecting. And it's not the fact that you affect your people. It's the fact that right. you infect them. 
and then you wonder yes. why yes. somebody says to you, you end up saying to me as the coach, I don't, guy, people just don't seem to have that. Like when I, when I was doing it, you know, there, was, there wasn't such a gap between me and my manager. And that's because your manager didn't infect you. You know, uh, so again, it's this, it is, it's all this kind of stuff that I, I think I'm hearing in what you're saying that I resonate with, which is why I'm smiling because I really hear that. I think in, in my experience with things as well. And you're making me think the, you know, the best. I hadn't thought about this before either, but the best teachers are not sort of the most expert. You know, the very, very top, the gold medalists. They're the ones who can get into you know, really get into the process of, of bringing others out, right? Of bringing, yes. bringing the best out of others, which of course I think is a definition of leadership too, right? That mm. leadership is the force that harnesses the energies of others to achieve greatness, whether that's in themselves as individuals or for their team or for their organization. And, and I think we too often in this culture are respecting the best only. Right, the person who's sort of the you know the top of their game, or you know wins the championships, or gets that top spot, or makes the most money, or you know you name your yardstick, rather than the person who is best able to draw out in others that which is needed and that helps them grow and learn and contribute. I really buy into that, and I I guess part of this comes also down to the dynamics that almost systemic creation of what is being measured gets done right and what drives people through reward and you know if you're in a private equity kind of you know three-year earnout kind of trying to you know all the way through to big you know big annual bonuses in from this five-year strategy and you know as these things push that behavior and i think i'm i'm really intrigued by almost good people doing bad things right because yes. actually, I've never met anybody that I said, if this was a job interview, what would you tell me you'd do? <laughs> and, they, and they give you this brilliant answer. And you go, so why aren't you doing it? Have you, hey. met, my, have you met my boss or, well, you, you know, or, or whatever? Uh, uh, and actually, it's very rare that people don't know what to do or don't have at least two or three things they could do to find out which one's the right okay. one. But actually, Something's it's the it's the punitive kind of back to the good old carrot and stick. How am I, how am I, what's going to hurt me? You know, or, or what's my reward going to be? So I don't know how much you look at systems and that reward element and that kind of internal stuff that says, you know what, you can do all the culture work you like. You can do all the, in fact, one of the things I don't know, this was, I often say to people, be careful what you ask for. Because if you give, if you let me develop or you let people develop them to a level of people knowing what really good looks like, but the systems prevent it, you're probably going to go backwards in terms of your engagement because now you're showing people the shop window and going, you can't have it. Right, right. right. And I just wonder how much of your work is systems and actually it's not about the development, it's about what you do internally to allow people. How much of that? kind of operates with you a, a great deal and in fact in my in my mba teaching spend I, have, I teach a course called becoming a general manager you know a general manager is someone who maybe runs the enterprise or or, or um, runs a business unit in other words they're not a they're not a functional manager they're not a marketing manager or a manufacturing manager right they're the general manager yeah. who 
by definition of the role, need to be able to consider those multiple perspectives and the, the needs of those different parts of, of the organization, whether public or, 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 um, or private sector organization. And clearly a big module in this course is rewards. But we, we spend very little time on formal rewards, meaning, you know, is this bonus scheme better than that bonus scheme? I mean, there are others who teach things about that. That's fine. That's great. That's not what, what, what I teach. What, what, what I teach is about the, the, the informal rewards, which can be far more, you know, far more influential in people's actual behavior. And the informal rewards are, you know, the things that, and this does bleed into culture, the things that get, acknowledged the things that um you know that that um the sort of important people are are doing um the recognition uh, the the sense sometimes even just the sense of opportunity or advancement or uh, to feel good about the work you did today right if you if you start thinking like a social psychologist about what shapes people's behavior and then it is it's not just rewards it's punishments as well it's you know what what are the things that um, you get sanctioned for that you just don't want to do because, mm-hmm. because of that? And, and sometimes the answer is risks that go wrong. Well, then what, what's going to happen? Then you're going to get nobody willing to take risks. Mm-hmm. So if, when, you, um, when you sort of do, I don't know, there was a wonderful social psychologist years and years ago, Kurt Lewin, who talked about introduced the idea of force field analysis, you know, just step back. Anyone can do this, right? And and think about well, what are the forces encouraging that behavior? What are the forces diminishing that behavior? And you can get some pretty good insights pretty quickly as to why people aren't doing the things you wish they did. Because in fact, they're not being rewarded for it, and they may even be penalized for it. So then you have to think differently about the system, right? How do we, how do we, what changes do we make in the system so that it is uh, less perverse in its rewards and punishments? I think that's um, that's a very interesting place, I think, for people to operate from, which is not just looking at what they may believe is right, but actually trying to, I think what I'm hearing, that ability to step away and going, well, you know, if you're almost an ex, if you were watching this on a live video documentary, almost, you know, I often say, what would you be shouting at the screen? You know, I know you're saying that, but it's quite obvious what he's scared of. <laughs> or, right, right, you know, right. it's almost, can you step out and look in? And, yeah. uh, you know, that what would you shout at the TV screen if you saw this, or this situation is often a great kind of way of, you know, because you can often see it. But then it's whether or not there's a willingness to do something uh, about it. So one of my key questions that I'm really fascinated in, and I'd love you to uh, give me your thoughts on it, is this idea about bravery and what bravery looks like. So I talk about trust, accountability, bravery and connection. And bravery, uh, which is a whole other podcast, but in terms of bravery, um, you know, there's bravery is the thing that people have very often when they start a role 
I've been brought in to sort something out, maybe, or I've been given a license to operate, or that's my role here now. And then there's this, and it's not the most gracious of terms, but I talk about sort of almost going native. You've been there for so long now that you've now become part of it, whatever it is. So to stay, yeah, yeah. So to stay elegantly disconnected to to be an integral part of it but also not to allow yourself to be so in it that you you can't look from the outside in because i think there's something about how do you talk to people and whether or not it's even a topic for you about it's not that you won't have the idea of what needs sorting it'll be your sense of the effort right and your sense of your sense of the reaction or the dismissal or where you get validation from or your own ego and i wonder how that so bravery you know it, 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 when actually you're three li- you're three lines down on the on the hierarchy or whatever that might be so I, I don't know how that comes out as a conversation for you i think about bravery all the time so <laughs> I, I let's let's let me back up right so the probably the single topic I'm best known for academically and probably more broadly is psychological safety, which is a kind of badly named term to describe a context where you feel your voice is welcome, right? Right. That speaking is, um, and I want to be clear about this, not easy, but expected and palatable for that reason, right? I can speak up with a dissenting view, or I can say, I think that's an error, or I can say, um, I need help, right? That those are things, not easy, right? Not fun uh, to, to be a person acknowledging vulnerability or disagreeing with the boss, but necessary in an uncertain world. So, so this, is what, this is what I spend a lot of time thinking about, looking at, studying. Like, wh- Under what conditions do people really take seriously the idea that their voice is welcome, right? And that turns out to be not normal, right? Not the, not, not the norm, right? So the, it's much more normal to be, eh, I'll wait and see, you know, I'll hold back. Nobody ever got fired for silence, right? So, um, so increasingly, I will say that courage anyway, which is similar to bravery, courage and psychological safety are two halves of the same coin, right? That it's, in, in part, I say that because it's never easy. It's going to take effort. It's good. There's going to be that moment where you've got a lump in your throat. You're just going to say it anyway. Um, And you do it. Why? Right. You do it because you care. You care about the team. You care about the customer. You care about the patient, whatever, whatever the situation might be. And you do it because you know it might be the right thing to do. It might matter. And your colleagues won't penalize you for it. Right? But it's got to be more than you won't be punished. Like we don't do things just to avoid punishment, uh, but we, so it, it's sort of that, that combination. So what does this mean? This means we've got to have room for, we've got to have ways of encouraging bravery. Because I think just about everything we do in, in an uncertain world takes a little bit of bravery. It just does. Right? It takes a little bit of bravery to get up in the morning and, you know, get back on that task and, and hope that you can make a little bit of, of difference against it. Hmm. And this, this leads me to, I'm, I've been fascinated by the advent of cancel culture, hmm. 
which almost gives me an anxiety even talking about it, frankly. But um, psychological safety counterweighted with cancel culture. Yeah. Yeah, it, at, at a, it is a very interesting thing because one might say, we, well, we know what that is on social media, where the, the 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 few who sound like the many attack in a very kind of intimate way, which never existed yeah. before, and, yeah. and people yeah. are fear, fearful yeah. of it, so people keep quiet. And in the workplace, you know, we can feel that coming in more and more because if I say something on my private social media, all the way through to what might council culture look like internally? Well, you know, people starting to talk about me to more senior people or uh, I, you know, I get cancelled in a professional way uh, kind of thing. So, this, but I just, I think, I, I think that's always happened where people can turn against you. But I think yes. there's something going on in society as well that is almost magnifying it to a point where I wonder if that's people, I don't know, people say, well, it's not really happening inside an organization. I go, no, but it happens in society, which I think might be making us more fearful as people. And I, I don't know if that, yes. you know, just your thoughts I, on that. I think you're onto something. I think we are very fearful. I mean, this is a time, it's funny because this is a time of great fear. I mean, we in, in um, that we're in a heat wave now. I, I, I don't know if, if you are, but I'm in this. <laughs> I wish we were. But no. Yeah, well, don't uh, be careful what you wish for. You, you know, I'm in the great state of Maine where right. um, essentially nobody has air conditioning because, right. you know, it's just never hot up here. Um, up meaning north uh, and and down east, as they say, and um, and in our in in the state of Seattle and Oregon right now, they they have temperatures being recorded that are not just on the high side; they're 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 literally outside the entire range of recorded history. I mean, they're just they don't even overlap with the cloud of data points that have been taken over the last hundred years or so, right? So, and and I think that's. That's just one, but that's one of many uh, things we should be afraid about, right? Because human beings cannot exist. Your brains don't work above a certain temperature. And yeah. we're, we're finding at least parts of the U.S. or are, are Southwest having some of those temperatures. Okay, so right, there's plenty to be afraid of. God knows we shouldn't add on to that being afraid of each other. And I think there is that risk. There is that risk in the cancel culture of it's such it's so fraught it's so in it, you, you one must tiptoe so delicately that you're always better off just holding back right and if we're coming to the conclusion that we're better off holding back we are in big trouble it's so I, I wrote a piece recently about productive fear versus unproductive fear. Oh, okay. and, and in a sense, productive fear is the kind of fear that drives us to do something useful, you know, to invent more renewable energy to, you know, because we're afraid of, of the impacts of, of rising temperatures, for example. Unproductive fear is the kind that leads us in back into the fetal position, right? To just not be, not feel willing or able uh, to do anything and and to team up effectively with our colleagues and friends uh, to make a make a positive difference, and so we've got to get better at sort of separating those things that we really ought to team up and do something about, and then and then those things that um, 
might get in the way and, and be a little bit better at forgiveness, right? I mean, I think the, the um, we are all fallible human beings, right? We will all make mistakes, full stop. That's just a given, right? That's not, a, that's not something we can debate. That's a given. Hmm. The thing that we don't know for sure is how will people respond to us? you know, when, when we make mistakes, you know, when we get it wrong, when we step in it, you know, when we say something that wasn't intended to be, but is heard as um, hurtful, right? Are, are we willing and able to forgive each other in, in the way that we, of course, want to be forgiven? There's something here about checking intent, isn't there? You know, right, I, I, have right. to, I have to check your intent. If, I, if I'm penalized or if an individual is penalized for vocabulary purely on a subjective level, Right, that right. means that the individual can make choices about words that you now take out of my vocabulary because of your personal response to them. Right. right. As opposed Which I to might not know in advance. Like I might, how do I know? I mean, do I know enough about you to know yeah. your personal yeah. response? And if you check my intent and you say, if your intent is not to harm me, then I can, I believe you can give somebody a free pass on their language because, oh, you have no intention to harm. Yep. This is just your, this is your vocabulary. Okay. And, and I, I have this sense that one of the, one of the key things that I'm very keen on, and I, I think I'm hearing it in what you say, and I'd just like to hear your thoughts on it. You know, I, I, I have a, something I call the truth triangle, which is your truth, the organization's truth and society's truth. Mm, right yeah and you're in the middle of that so there's what you want there's what the organization wants from you but you operate in a world that maybe 25 30 years ago wasn't you know we weren't so connected to it through all the mediums that we have Mm -hmm. so one of the things i talk about is not 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 social responsibility but just sorry not corporate social responsibility social responsibility Mm -hmm. and i'm wondering if in what the way you come at it it's similar to some things I think about, which is if you're enabling somebody to hold space on an idea, to give another human being feedback, to check in on their intent, a lot of the counterweight to some of the things that is happening in the world is our ability to educate our managers and our leaders to educate their people on how to be a leader of self and then to have a language and a control that goes back into society and it's almost in some way, it's, you know, our small way of, of affecting it back against what I would see as a potential infection and saying what we're talking about here isn't just for corporations, isn't just for organizations. It's inherently true. And your application of it should be in the world, wherever you may be. And I, I don't know how that sits with you. Absolutely. You know, there's, this is really old, but there was some beautiful research done by Paul Adler way back in the early 80s on, on NUMMI, which N-U-M-M-I, which stands for New United Motor Manufacturing. And it, it, was, it was qualitative research looking at this manufacturing plant, which was basically the first plant in the United States. It was a General Motors plant in Fremont, California, still belong to General Motors, but after 18 months of shutdown, Toyota came in and managed it for them. And and basically it was, um, the plant had been shut down because it was the worst plant in GM's entire, you know, 
network, right? It just had the, had the most absenteeism, the worst quality, you know, it was just terrible. So um, they um, laid everybody off. And 18 months later, Toyota came in and, and took it over and they hired um, everybody back, or at least they hired the people who hadn't gotten another better job, right? So they, they essentially hired back the worst of the, you know, in, in, in theory, um, fast forward, becomes the best plant, of course, right? Because it's just how do you, you know, how do you manage? How do you enable people to be great? And the, the reason I thought of this story was that some of that, in some of that work, what you see is that people went home. You know, these wonderful team members went home and they found themselves being better human beings in their families. You know, they stepped up after dinner uh, to help with the dishes. They no longer said, hey, I've done my eight, you know, sat on the couch with a beer watching the game, right? They just became more respectful, better team members at home and at work. And they were very conscious of it. They were conscious of how this experience of having good management that was really focused on learning and excellence um, of, of, of quality and speaking up, um, how that changed them, right? How that made them better. And that has a ripple effect. Yeah. It, I think it, it does infect uh, much more broadly. I've come to really believe that, that, you know, when I started out, you know, training management skills and et cetera, you know, uh, et cetera, moving into leadership, but thinking it's basically the same thing, but for more senior people. And uh, as I've matured, uh, I've, I've, I've come to that kind of conclusion that actually uh, there's the skills that one may require to do the role, but in terms of behaviorally, it's actually about us as human beings. And, you know, the fact that you can read a PNL, that's not a leadership competence. That's a management task or a role specific capability. If we're talking about, your behaviors it's you know it's how you interact it's the impact that you're having whether or not people engage with all those kind of things but isn't that just like being at home you know isn't that just do your kids look forward to having a performance management conversation with you <laughs> you know you know if you've got to give them feedback oh my god mum or dad's gonna yell at me or is it actually i'm going no i'm going to engage you we're going to have a very transparent conversation and you're going to be accountable for it as much as i am and you know, and I find that this stuff, I don't know, but I'm sure you do. People come back to you and say, I'm using this everywhere. Oh, I'm yes. presuming you're, you get that a lot. Absolutely. You know, leadership is about recognizing that you cannot, full stop, cannot control other people. I don't care if you think you can. I don't care if you think your role has the right and the ability to control other people. You cannot. You know, people will only do what they choose to do. Right? I understand you have the right to fire people and so forth, but there is always going to be a gap between what they will give at the job to avoid being fired and what they really have available to give. And that's true in families too. Right? So, so leadership is about recognizing I cannot control, right? I can only inspire, enable, engage, create the conditions in which, you know, all of that very indirect dare I say it, soft stuff that does in fact start with self-management and then reaches out to kind of doing a better job with managing and enabling good conversations to happen in the face of uncertainty. And then finally also building the kinds of relationships, you know, the kinds of relational um, capital that lead people to 
care, that lead people to want to and able to withstand the temporary assault of disagreement or conflict to, to contribute right, mm. to, to the larger goal. So I'm super aware that I can run down a hundred rabbit holes with you <laughs> with, with the topics that we, that we have. So just as we kind of maybe come towards that kind of the end of the, this time together, because otherwise I'm going to turn this into a three day podcast and you're going to say, <laughs> guy, guy, I really have to go now. Um, <laughs> I'm, hungry. <laughs> I'm hungry. So um, I'm hyper alert to that. Um, I've, I've just got a, a, a couple of hopefully relatively quick fire questions which is number one you know if somebody said to you amy uh, i'm interested in leadership or improving my leadership um is what what should i read oh. right what should i read because i've got my kind of go-to look there's a hundred books you could read but i would definitely suggest this one and blah 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 you know do you, do you have that kind of just instinctively you know, it probably doesn't matter where you are in life. This one's an absolute cracker. It'll, it'll give you a good frame of reference. Humble Inquiry by Ed Schein would, I think, be my number one. Say that one again, please, Amy. Um, Humble Inquiry. Humble Inquiry. Nice. And okay. Ed is you know, really, in, in many ways, the, the father of culture. Right? He's uh -huh. the one who really brought the concept of culture to the fore um, way back. Uh -huh. uh, and, and that is a... Um, I mean, I think that's a beautiful book about the things we've been talking about, about that, that sort of humility to, you know, to inquire and to pull forward the knowledge, pull out the knowledge of others. Um, I'd also, um, I am a huge fan of, I think it's an incredibly powerful and useful book. And it's, it's, it's in the same vein, but a very different kind of book, which is Leadership and Self-Deception. I don't know if you know that one. It's, called, it's by the Arbinger Institute, right? Yeah. So it doesn't, it's so humble, it doesn't even have a person's name um, on, the, on the author byline. Um, and what makes it very different is that it's, it's written as a novel. I'm not gonna say this is great fiction, I mean, but, but, but it's great leadership advice. And it's, it's you know, it's, it's this impact intention stuff we've been talking about. Right. Um, so I think it's an incredibly a must read um, for all would be leaders or current leaders who want to up their up their game. So maybe I'll I'll stop there. No, I mean that's um, the leadership self deception. I knew about humble inquiry. I didn't. So that's um, that's that's uh, that's great yeah. to hear those. And you know, my I think my last question then is, you know. Um, I imagine you have a hundred people asking you a hundred questions a day, you know, Amy, what are your thoughts on? Uh, but just in the current kind of climate that you're in, what's that kind of top? Yeah. That's, that's the question I'm getting a lot guy. And okay. uh, great oh. just to hear that. <laughs> I, I don't know if, if I were to ask you to guess, I think you'd guess it. Uh, so here it is. It's um, how do we do psychological safety with work from home? Yeah. Okay. How do we, you know, how do we create the kinds of environments where people are willing to speak up and willing to really lean in and engage um, when we're all connecting through a tiny square in a computer screen? Um, and uh, my short answer is your right to worry, right? your right to think candor and engagement takes a hit when we are mediated by 
video communication rather than sort of a round table together. Um, and you can overcome it, right? You can overcome it by um, both by using some of the features that the technology brings that real life doesn't bring, like the chat and the polls and, and, and so on, um, but also more generally just by a little bit more structure, right? Let's, for example, let's do a round. Like, let's get a uh, guy, what, what, what are your thoughts about the project? Okay to pass, but we will systematically um, bring people in, bring people in. Um, and, and then maybe we'll do polls and maybe we'll do, you know, we'll do whatever we can to kind of force voice, like to, to or maybe a better way to say it is to lower the hurdles because the hurdles just went up. So what do we do, even if it feels heavy handed to bring the hurdles back down? Hmm. So you may have to do something that is almost a conscious competence. You may have right. to, you, yes. you know, and, and, and wear it in like a good pair of shoes, right? It, we know, we know they're the ones we want to wear, but we're going to have to get used to them. <laughs> right. And it, it might feel gimmicky, right? It might yeah. feel gimmicky to yeah. use some of the little features or to yeah. do a round um, or, um, you know, to have different people kind of cold call the next person, mm. which encourages everyone to sort of stay tuned in in case your name, name is next. Um, yeah. So but let's see if, some, let's see what sticks, right? Right. Let's see what sticks. Hmm. Okay. Well, listen, uh, Amy, you know, I literally want to kind of lock you in my back room for the next three days and <laughs> talk to you through. And no, no, you can't go until you've answered this, but I'm going to not do that. Uh, <laughs> which made me sound incredibly odd, but you've been an absolute joy. So I just want to say thank you so much for this time. I know it's precious and, um, you know, we're all busy and I know you are. So just for me to you and anybody that's listening, just a very big thank you so much for your time. You are so very welcome, but truthfully, it has been a joy in return. I loved talking with you. I gained as much as I gave. So thank you. That's very gracious. Take care. That's it. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please share so others get to hear about us and subscribe so you keep up to date on new episodes. Also visit livingbrave.com if you want to connect with me and find out more about executive coaching, team effectiveness and changing culture. Oh, and of course you can buy my book, Living Brave Leadership on Amazon. So on that note, see you soon.